Welcome to Reasonable Doubts, your skeptical guide to religion. Doubts, the radio show and podcast for those who won't just take things on faith. Coming to you from Grand Rapids, Michigan, where local references are more popular than the meanwhile on a Saturday night. You can find us online at doubtcast.org or freethoughtblogs.com slash reasonable doubts. You can also listen to us on Public Reality Radio, 1680 AM, WPRR, Ada Grand Rapids, 95.3 FM W237CZ Hudsonville, and 88.3 FM WPJC in Pontiac, Illinois. And as always, streaming at publicrealityradio.org. My name is Dave Fletcher, and with me in the studio are my fellow Doubtcasters, Mr. Jeremy Bean. Hello. It was nice of you to give a shout out to our local wretched hive of scum and <laughs> hipster villainry. Yeah, but, but, but this is a place that, uh, uh, Every, okay, so it's really dark in there, but everybody's the really beautiful and sad at the same time. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's so emo. That sums it up pretty nicely. And that, of course, is teen pop sensation Justin Schieber. Good afternoon. Or, or whatever time it is when people are listening to it, I suppose. I guarantee so. you there's more Reasonable Doubts listeners at the Meanwhile than any other bar in Grand Rapids. <laughs> oh, no. And, that may well be true. And, uh, and if, if I'm wrong about that, I we can – Try to take some sort of informal poll. <laughs> yeah, let over us, beer. Let us know out there, folks. Um, Doctor Professor Luke Galen is, I believe, busy working on his forthcoming book, and more details yes. on that uh, in the future. I'm sure. I'm sure he won't shut up about it, um, but probably ever again. But uh, <laughs> so we'll be getting more into that later. But on this episode. We've got um, some God things like you. We've got counter apologetics, polyatheism, stranger than fiction, and more. But first, let's head over to uh, to Mother Russia, where, by the way, don't go. Let's just be clear on that. <laughs> if you are if you're gay or um, care about uh, gay rights issues, don't go to Russia. It's really bad there. Okay. Um, and some more bad news coming out of Russia. This, according to an article from Salon.com, Russia makes it illegal to insult, quote, the feelings of religious believers. In the news a lot lately, of, of course, has been this legislation about criminalizing teaching about homosexuality to children, right? Not yeah. teaching children to be homosexuals, just right. – Acknowledging the yeah, existence of homosexuals. Describing it as comparable to a heterosexual relationship is yeah. illegal. Yeah. yeah. Russia is on a lot of people's radar as far as uh, human rights and free speech issues right now. It's like the but 1980s all over yeah. again. But it really is a part of a, you know, that's just the tip of the iceberg mm -hmm. on a much larger battle against free speech that's going on in that country right now. Of course, we've mentioned before the, the, uh, punk band, uh, Pussy Riot being thrown in jail mm -hmm. for, uh, making a, a, a provocative statement against the Russian Orthodox Church while within a church. Well, the church and its ties to the government. Yes, the, the, in particular. So protesting this very thing. <laughs> this exact thing, yes. 
And, kind of backfired uh, a little bit. Yeah, yeah. And they were sent uh, to prison for it. About 56 percent of the rough Russian population, according to religion dispatches, agreed with that verdict, mm-hmm. showing that there's considerable public support for these hmm. – what uh, amounts to a blasphemy law. Right. The bill that we wanted to talk about, it's kind of a switch in policy. Uh, there have been laws in the Russian civil code mm-hmm. that protect religious believers' feelings from being insulted. But with recent legislation, it's become a criminal offense mm-hmm. now. Mm. Quote, public acts expressing manifest disrespect for society and carried out with the goal of insulting the feelings of religious believers, end quote. So I think maybe it's important. It seems important to me that the goal is insulting the feelings of religious believers, if someone is inadvertently insulted, um, there may be some wiggle room. But the Russian court's not known for um, a yeah, lot of – yeah. say manifest disrespect mm-hmm. for society. I mean what does that mean? And, yeah. and the charges that are accompanied up here can be up to a year in imprisonment. Yes. Wow. Uh, that can bring fines as, as large as $1,000. Or uh, actually as high as 300,000 uh, rubles, which is roughly $9,000 American. Oh, my God. So, yeah. Oh, my God. If the act is carried out in a place of worship mm-hmm. specifically, people could be facing $15,000 charge yeah. or three up to three years in prison. Uh, I'm not kidding around. This was written after the Pussy Riot incident mm-hmm. and basically specifically so that that doesn't happen again. It was signed into – yeah. this is – this is your punishment. And it was signed into law and put into effect uh, in the beginning of July of this year. Mm-hmm. But that's where the story gets a little more interesting. People pointed out that the law really only protects the four largest faiths in Russia, Christianity, Islam, Judaism, and Buddhism. Mm-hmm. So human rights organizations were talking about, right, the very real possibility that this could be discriminatory. I mean, this could be, right? Yes. I love that I love that language because There's it a potential is for by nature. <laughs> it is. Yes, There's a yes. potential for it to be, yeah. Uh, and apparently even Putin's own cabinet has yeah. expressed concern, which is odd then. Why did he sign it into law? Yeah, uh, it seems like they, they kind of pushed it through a little too quickly and no one really yeah. thought about the, the greater implications. The proposed fix Uh-oh. now is to actually expand it and Russian legislators are already saying that they're going through with this. Mm-hmm. This is not going to be stopped. The law will now be expanded to protect the feelings of people who follow non-traditional religions mm-hmm. and atheists. Congratulations, guys. Your feelings can't get hurt in Russia. Yeah, isn't that great? Now nobody can intentionally – nobody could – yeah, and I guess fine. So no one can say any value-laden statement about any belief system at all. That is essentially what this amounts to. Because – because if you say that uh, you know Christianity is okay, then mm-hmm. you're by necessity uh, it, hurting the feelings of right. And, and people are baffled as to uh, how are you going to possibly enforce this, right? right? Yeah. Well, basically, because, it just keeps all discussion of religion out of the public square, or uh, just you know makes it much more scary. Now you right, have to right. think yeah. twice about what you're going to say. Every single thing you say. Article here from Religion Dispatches quotes. A Russian scholar, Dmitry Yuzlener, uh, he says, quote, the result will be some sort of religious zoo. 
Don't annoy the tiger. Don't feed the elephant candy. Don't knock on the glass. Don't bother the mouse. All that remains is to walk among the enclosures taking pictures without a flash. Mm. And scholars evidently will have to master the tenderly touching intonation of Uh. Nikolai Drozdov, who's uh, one of their, like, uh, Jack Hanna guys over there. He hosts Mm -hmm. a show called uh, In the World of Animals. Mm. Scholars will have to master the tenderly touching intonation of Drozdov and the affected face expression. And those Buddhists, just look how lovely they are. (laughs) All this is doing is just imposing a gag order on everybody. Yeah. Yeah. Right? And what's going to keep conflicts from breaking out anyways? You know, obviously people are going to continue to discuss these issues. They're going to make their claims. This isn't going to silence anybody. But what it will do it'll is bring – It will actually probably irritate it more because yeah. they're going to yeah. see it as Certainly. religious oppression mm-hmm. and we know what happens yeah. then. It will be a back and forth between you oppressed me and right. no, you oppressed me. And those Russian prisons, I know they've probably gotten better than in Dostoevsky's time, but they're still not kidding around with those things. So, you know, if someone if someone charges you with, you know, this essentially a blasphemy law or you hurt my feelings, a year in prison is a big deal. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't want to do that here in the United States, but I certainly don't want to go to a, a, a work camp. Or a gulag in Russia, you know? This well, is if we get lucky, they'll just stuff. trap us in an airport. It's been known to happen. I'm surprised we got through that without any mention of in Mother Russia jokes. Yeah, no no Yakov Shmirnov this time. I'm, I'm sorry. I apologize. Overplayed. Yeah, well. <laughs> but at least we don't live in Russia. We live in a country where there are no problems with church and state separation. Right? <laughs> America. <laughs> USA, uh, USA, yeah. Which leads us to uh, yet another encroachment on the separation of church and state. Um, this is an article by um, our friend and uh, uh, one of my man crushes, Mr. Austin Dacey. Um, <laughs> I was so excited when I saw the article it was by Austin Dacey. It's been a while. I haven't seen him around. Austin and, uh, Dacey's like – Do you miss him? I, I do. I do. Yeah, I, I miss, miss his eyes, man. Oh, those penetrating eyes. Dreamy. Uh, yeah, Austin Dacey, I think I've probably said this on the show before, but he's kind of the poster child for the unfairness of evolution. To me, you know, like, like, wouldn't it be nice if, you know, some people had the intelligence, but, you know, maybe if they had a ridiculous amount of natural intelligence, they maybe they're like naturally ugly, right? Like, like a and Robert Price, just kinda, no offense. Yeah. Right. Where you only it's get a few price. character yeah. points to fulfill your, your character yeah. and you get to choose. You know. Right. And everyone's <laughs> basically balanced on, you know, Absolutely. something. No, not at all. Occasionally you do get people who are like incredibly attractive, can speak seven different languages, yeah. have encyclopedic philosophic knowledge and are like socially competent too mm-hmm. and can manage to talk and woo people and that sort of thing. And, yeah, that's freaking Austin Dasty. Yeah. so jealous. <laughs> and uh, he, he brings us uh, uh, another article from uh, Religion Dispatches entitled State Department to Open an Office of Religious Engagement. Yeah. And we should oh. say this is a um, somewhat cautious piece. It's not entirely clear when this department – of religious engagement could step over the line of church and state. And that's more or less his point. Yes. Mm-hmm. Is with uh with these things and with the current way that the 
separation clause is, is interpreted, it's really hard to say if anybody will be able to rein in a program like this. You're courting trouble just by setting up yeah. a, right. a group like this. Let's talk about what it is first. On August 18th, it was announced by a professor of Christian ethics working for the State Department. Yeah, Sean Casey. Yeah. That a new office is going to be opened that will, quote, focus on engagement with faith-based organizations and religious institutions around the world to strengthen U.S. development and diplomacy and advance America's interests and values. Now, the rationale for this sounds rather good. When the Religion and Foreign Policy Working Group first proposed this department, Mm -hmm. here was their rationale for it. Quote, understanding religion is imperative to understanding local civil society. No doubts there. Mm -hmm. Gallup polls show us that four out of five people on the planet believe in something greater than themselves, often viewing all sectors of life through the prism of faith. Does that include Austin Dacey as something greater than myself? If you believe in him, I I guess. Uh, religious faith and adherence is often a source of conflict and, contribu- and contributes to global instability and undermines long-term U.S. interests, <laughs> no doubt. Mm-hmm. However, those same forces of faith contribute much good to civil society and when properly engaged can promote human progress and peaceful coexistence on a global scale. A uh, oh, little more debatable in my mm-hmm. mind, but eh, OK. So – why not? Why not open a department like this, try to foster relationships with different religious organizations, try to better educate our diplomats in the religious practices and beliefs? I mean, that just sounds like a good diplomacy at work, right? Mm. Although, as as he notes in the article, diplomacy is, is generally moving away from the religious stuff because that is such a powder keg. The statement here that uh, – those same forces of faith can contribute much good to civil society and promote human progress and peaceful coexistence. Well, if you refer to the article that Luke Allen and I recently published in Free Inquiry, you're going to see that more times than not, all the good vibes religion produces are towards the in-group members mm-hmm. of that religion. Mm-hmm. Uh, more often than not, coexistence is not exactly something that religions excel at. Except for maybe in the case uh, when banding against people like us, right, secularists. Right. They're real good at that. Uh, I get that. Yeah, yeah. They, they are pretty good at that when they perceive a threat to religion as a whole. One way we could challenge this is to just challenge the rationale. Is it really going to make that big of a difference? What Austin Dacey points out is well, – I'll just, I'll just quote him. He says, constitutional or not, official interfacing with faith-based organizations will constitute a troubling form of government endorsement. The defining of some communities among various porous bordered normative and discursive communities as religions and the anointing of some individuals as recognized spokesmen for these communities, obviously, this could be quite a problem. Mm -hmm. Uh, He says often it's precisely the dissidents, the doubters, the non-traditional believers who are the most in need of recognition and who often offer the most most needed perspectives on the prospects for peace, the rule of law. And minority rights within their societies. When the U.S. government bestows high-level diplomatic attention instead on select, typically male, adult, and non-democratically appointed spokespersons, it aids them in consolidating their their own power and authority within their communities. And really that's the idea here. More power and influence to the already powerful in these countries. 
uh, who are oftentimes themselves a major cause of these conflicts related to religion. Look at Egypt. Look at uh, all of the Middle East. It's even more disappointing because the original proposal – recognizing that we do need to train our diplomats uh, much better and we do need to engage these community groups. The original proposal to the State Department considered the idea that focusing on religious groups might be too narrow Mm -hmm. and put forward an option to create what would instead be called the Office of Non-Governmental Engagement and Partnerships. That's so this would good. look at charities yeah, and yeah. Uh, and a number of community the broader cultural context yeah. and target all these institutions instead yeah. of just favoring religion, but instead fav- under the direction of Christian ethicists, yes. <laughs> they decided to adopt the more exclusive, more narrowly mm-hmm. focused version of it. So just a very disappointing development. It seems like these church-state entanglements in our country are getting worse all the time. Yeah, we may have uh, may have some hope um, on the horizon, at least in the military, in that um, we may be approaching our very first humanist chaplain to serve hey. in the military. Jason Heap, who's a 38-year-old graduate of uh, the University of Oxford and of Bright Divinity School at uh, Texas Christian University, was born and raised a devout Christian. And over the last few years has uh, lost his faith. Um, He spent, according to NPR here, um, he spent the last 12 years living in the United Kingdom, teaching um, in public schools, and has become a prominent humanist. Now he is applying to become the first humanist chaplain of the uh, U.S. Marine Corps. And that's, uh, you know, it seems like something that should have happened a long time ago. We already yeah, have incredible. the uh, Military Association of Atheists and Freethinkers, um, led by uh, Jason Torpy. Um, there are these, there are already groups within the the yeah. military to support non-believers. It seems like a a humanist chaplain makes a lot of sense. I, I not to take away from this achievement because mm-hmm. uh, it is important to have one specifically labeled as humanist. I, yeah. I think that's a powerful development in the right direction. I would say though there's probably a lot of humanists and atheists already serving as chaplains just because Unitarian Universalists oh, sure, is sure. one specific route and, and uh, a lot of those uh, men and women are as secular as – as us, yeah, but but nevertheless, specifically labeled humanist, yes, and getting recognition for that as a kind of s- spiritual outlook, I guess, or being able to attend to those spiritual needs, mm-hmm. yeah, I as, think that's cool. As they point out here, uh, several universities already have these: Harvard, uh, Stanford. Um, the mm-hmm. Dutch Army has humanist chaplains, of course. The Dutch being kind of the the original freethinkers, uh, so that's. That's cool, um, but we're not we're not quite there yet. There's not surprisingly been some backlash. Uh, last week, the U.S. House of Representatives instructed the armed forces to only allow religious organizations wow. that believe in a higher power to endorse chaplains. So far, the Navy has not indicated whether or not it will accept the Humanist Society as the endorser of Jason Heap. So if they decide to qualify the Humanist Society as a religious organization with belief in a higher power, (laughs) then he can um, become a chaplain. Now, that would be um, 
a pretty loose definition of why a higher power though i mean uh, even a lot right. of religions that that are yeah. accepted like buddhism, buddhism. Would that wouldn't that eliminate Buddhists from being able well, to serve as chaplains? At least some. Yeah, yeah, I, I would certainly think so. In most states, at least, I realize this is a military thing, so we're not yeah. talking about state laws. But at least most states, or many states, recognize the Humanist Society already as a uh, as mm. a body that can accredit uh, officiants yeah, for weddings absolutely. and that sort of thing. So this is not like. People, members of the Humanist Society, have already been performing under these capacities mm. and have. But to, to make it official um, is a big deal, and it makes people very uneasy. And it's also mm-hmm. it's very exciting for us. Uh, Jason Torpy, president of the Military Association of Atheists and Freethinkers, has said. Um, Quote, we have women in the military, we have blacks in the military, we have Hispanics, we have lesbian, gay, and bisexual service members, and we have atheists and humanists. And just as they've had to accept those other kinds of diversity, they'd have to accept our kind of diversity as well, diversity of belief. Uh, end quote. It does seem like something that's just a matter of time. I just don't know that this is going to be the time that mm-hmm. it actually mm-hmm. happens because there's there's a lot of blowback Right now. So we've talked about the military yeah. for years here and all of the, the issues and with the – Atheists in the military seems to be a kind of touchy subject across the armed mm-hmm. services. Yeah. Uh, we're getting uh, we're getting some conflicts in the Marine Corps right now mm-hmm. over uh, a, a list of potential risk indicators for suicide – that the Marines are using to assess their active duty members. Of course, suicide being a, a huge problem uh, in the U.S. military. I believe more people in the military active service last year died of suicide yeah. than they did actually than in combat. combat. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's, so. it's, it's an epidemic. In their list of risk factors, this is in the guidance slash moral compass issue. These are the, the the factors that they include. And, yeah, and maybe we should pause to say that like the overall uh, the overall idea here is not bad. Of, no, no. Of course, of course, the military needs to step up their screening. Of course, yes. they need to start paying attention to these problems before they become full blown, blown problems. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're not speaking against that aspect at all. No. It's what one of the risk factors they're considering yes. to be a risk factor is. They include in the guidance slash moral compass issue, which is kind of a loaded way to, to frame it anyway. Yeah. Um, the four different things, the first of which is lack or loss of spiritual faith. And then yeah. demonstrating lack of prudence, uh, lack of courage, lack of self-control, uh, along with those things is lack or loss of spiritual faith. The document of all these procedures and everything that they're sending out, it's available on rockbeyondbelief.org. I downloaded it. I didn't peruse it in the true sense of the word, peruse. (laughs) So I might have missed something, but I couldn't find reference to research behind these indicators. That's what I was wondering. Is this actually – In some of the debates – Mikey Weinstein, the uh, the attack dog for the Military Religious Freedom Foundation. I say that in a loving sense. He's an amazing guy. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I talked to him once on the phone. It was the most intimidating forty five seconds of my life <laughs> uh, because he's a no nonsense, you know, get in your face kind of individual. He, they've been making quite a stink about this, and rightfully so. Mm-hmm. 
Brigadier General Rhonda Cornum got on NPR to defend the spiritual fitness test that we looked at years ago. Yeah, that was mm-hmm. uh, back in uh, 2011, I think. Yeah, and, uh, the the you know this army test that uh, supposedly proposed all these ways you could improve the spiritual fitness. Of the uh, of the troops and or or to even test their spiritual fitness, including questions mm-hmm. like, "When you see a sunset, what do you think of?" Yeah, I'm not really? quite. Yes, so uh, it's not that, like spiritual push-ups. That is one of the questions <laughs> that is supposed to gauge uh, someone's spirituality. Cornum defended this, saying researchers have found that spiritual people have decreased odds of attempting suicide, and that spiritual fitness has a positive impact on quality of life on coping and on mental health. Uh, the Marine Corps document mentions then that these their measures were derived from scientific studies, mm-hmm. uh, making it very like – I mean the conjunction of those two makes it likely to me that that is the spiritual fitness test that they're referring to. That's right. where they're deriving some of these figures. Yeah. And we have uh, previously on the show, Dr. Galen has just torn that one apart. Mm-hmm. Luckily, this article that we're reading from from The Week was quite notable in that it recognized something that you don't hear too often on discussions about about religion and well-being. They mentioned, quote, the logic is flawed because these studies that come to the conclusion that religion reduces dangerous behavior only measure, measure religiosity through religious service attendance. Mm-hmm. This is a failed conclusion because – Attending a regular social activity of any sort produces the same external community of support that a religious community Absolutely. provides. Way to go the week yeah. for pointing that out. That's and Luke's gospel right yeah, there. And I do want to – yeah, I do think a little bit of congratulatory patting on the back is deserved as odds are you did hear that first. That, uh, that's true. Our boy Luke has uh, has been at the head of a lot of that research mm-hmm. and trying to promote that idea and get it out there. You can find it buried in the back of some of these other books on religion and right. pro-sociality. But yeah, it usually is buried in the margins and it's a very important fact. But beyond what the article in the week mentions, there's several other problems with how they assessed the spiritual fitness. One is the, the fact that there was – in assessing the health of people, there was a criterion contamination error. Hmm. One of the questions they would ask to get your spiritual fitness level would be things like belief in God. Hmm. But then they also included questions like, do you see a purpose for your life? Uh, Do you feel uh, accepted by family and friends and and, uh, measures that a non-religious person could definitely answer yes to? Mm -hmm. But as soon as they answer that yes to that question, they're lumped into the spiritual category. They're considered someone who's spiritual, yeah. Yeah. So this is artificially inflating or conflating. Yes, and of course someone who doesn't doesn't see a a purpose to their life, who has trouble with their family, doesn't have a support system – is more likely to commit suicide, and that that right. does not have to do but with the overlap. The overlap that has with atheism is yeah. an artificial. It's an right. artifact of the way they ask the questions. Yes, if they are basing their conclusions on suicide on this spiritual fitness study, which it appears that they have, mm-hmm. uh, the results are totally bunk yeah. and should be dismissed. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, this could have a real impact on service members. Proselytization in the military is already a huge right. problem. And if you have as the support, Military right. Religious Freedom Foundation documents over and over and over again, this is just going to be a tool 
in the hands of those officers that want to pressure their non-religious underlings to talk the spiritual talk. Right. And if you have someone who is dealing with depression, who's dealing with um, PTSD or anything like that, and they also happen to be atheist, that puts so much more pressure on someone who's already maybe tending towards suicidal issues. That's the last thing they need is assault to their worldview, which – we know from terror management studies, right? Isn't it neat how all this data comes together? It's amazing. <laughs> that, you know, we know that we rely on our worldviews to provide comfort, comfort mm-hmm. and security in times like that. So, yeah, we're going to basically be telling these officers to destabilize the worldview yeah. <laughs> of their underlings that are already Shake depressed. Shake things up a little bit for the depressed yeah. people. That really yeah. works. So this is unlikely to help and it might very likely hurt. Ultimately, it comes down to bad science. Yep. Well, uh, speaking of science in the news, let's uh, let's turn to some God thinks like you. Yes. Well, if you are at all paying attention to the news, it's quite likely you've seen a number of articles lately talking about how atheists have been proven to be more intelligent than religious people. So that's kind of nice, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, it's certainly not going to help with the smarmy atheist yeah. uh, uh, stereotype. I but. mean, I always, I already kind of thought I was more intelligent well, than religious yeah. people to begin with. So, <laughs> you know, I'm unfazed by this. We're joking, of course. Um, oh, I wasn't. I think we we all certainly know plenty of religious people who are incredibly intelligent and plenty of atheists are who are not so much. <laughs> but nevertheless, uh, many articles have been out there purporting this link between intelligence, IQ, and atheism. Or rather to put it the other way around, that there's a negative correlation between religiosity <laughs> and intelligence. Unfortunately, many of the articles don't go any further to explain the nature of this connection or how these conclusions were arrived at. That's why today on God Thinks Like You, we are going to take a deeper look at the meta-study behind many of these articles. Once again, for listeners who don't know what a meta-study is. It's a study of studies. Yes, it's a study of studies in any particular – you know, on any particular subject. Studies don't always match up. A meta-study is a really good tool to try to pool all studies on a particular subject together, uh, eliminate potential sources of bias or error, and then to get an overall sense that what does the majority of the research Hmm. on this report. According to this meta-analysis, the name is, let me read it, the relation between intelligence and religiosity, a meta-analysis and some proposed explanations with the lead author is Miriam Zuckerman. It was published in the Personality and Social Psychology Review in 2013. And this is all over the place. It purports to be actually one of the first meta-studies of its kind on, on this subject. And actually, I found uh, reading the article that there was a interesting history on this subject. As early as the 20s, it was known that people with higher levels of intelligence were less likely to be religious. But around the 1960s, a lot of that research just dropped off because a, a couple of studies came out by prominent authors that seemed to reject the conclusion. One in particular – 
a study in 1961 by Kosa and Schomer, argued this. Social environment regulates the relationship of mental abilities and religious attitudes by channeling intelligence into certain approved directions. A secular-oriented environment may direct it towards skepticism, and a church environment may direct it towards increased religious interest. And so their conclusion was, basically what had happened is they'd looked at people who attended, say, a Catholic college and found that the really intelligent students there seemed to know an awful lot about religious doctrines mm-hmm. and were right. able to use those ideas so in concepts. So they're focusing their intelligence in yeah. the field of religion. Right. As opposed Where to – they may have known less about science stuff. But then you go to a secular institution and you find the really intelligent people, right, are – tend to tend to be less religious, tend to focus on more uh, secular areas of study. Mm-hmm. But the idea was, you know, it's not really intelligence that's that's being measured. It's schooling. Education right. mediates yeah. this supposed negative correlation between intelligence and religiosity. If we're to look deeper, we'll see that religious people are just as intelligent. They just go into more religious fields of study. Another study came out in uh, around the same period, a couple years later. Uh, the lead author was Hogue. They were tracking religious attitudes in 13 campuses across the country. And found out that the relationship between SAT scores, that there, there were correlations between SAT scores and religious attitudes. And they were negative, but the, the findings weren't really significant. It was just a tiny little difference. And since SAT scores are positively correlated with intelligence, it looked like, you know, that that was a, a kind of a measure for intelligence too. Hmm. So again, the idea was, that really it's educational influences and biases that are mediating this relationship. Uh, really, there may not be any connection between religiosity and intelligence, negative or positive. It was just uh, researchers' biases were directing them hmm. into one area or, or the other. And this is why uh, why these meta-studies are so useful. Well, right. That's exactly it is, you know, you get – you have a handful of studies that are saying radically different stuff. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, the issue was just kind of dropped in the 70s, the 80s and the 90s. There wasn't a lot of research at all done in this area because it wasn't seen as very promising. Then in the past decade though, you have this slew of studies that come out. You know, uh, as as is mentioned many times, yeah, (laughs) as is mentioned many times on this show that, uh, psychology of religion was dead for quite a while and now it's kind of in a rebirth period. There's all sorts of new promising, uh, routes for research and a lot of really interesting work coming out right now. Well, all these new studies seemed again and again to show Indeed, there was a negative relationship between intelligence and religiosity. This seemed to come up over and over again. So the setting was ripe for a meta-study to compile all this together and see what's really going on. So Zuckerman's meta-study takes 63 studies overall. Big yeah, meta That's study. a hefty wow. uh, sample of studies. Out of them, we'll just talk about the basic conclusions first and mm-hmm. then go into some of the intriguing little details. Of the, of that pool of studies, 53 studies show negative correlations while 10 studies showed positive correlations. Wow. So the negatives far outweigh 
the positives. 37 studies showed significant correlations. So, mm-hmm. so while some of these, you know, might be rather minor, again, the bulk of the studies showed that these, these results were indeed significant. Mm-hmm. Okay. Of those, 35 were negative and two were positive. Wow. Overall, the major conclusion to come out of this is indeed the higher the intelligence you have, the less likely you are to be religious. Mm-hmm. Well, what about that objection that we could just be intelligent in different ways? One interesting way to try to tease that out was they separated this out. So this was taken out of the, out of the normal studies and, uh, and looked at separately. But what they looked at was does GPA, is grade point average, Mm. correlated at all? To religiosity, because if you're dealing with religious institutions, GPA would also factor in. Right. Uh, Zuckerman writes, perhaps it's not how long people have been in school, but rather how much they learned that mediates the relationship between intelligence and religiosity. GPA can be viewed as an indicator of how much knowledge one acquired while they were in school, and if the amount of knowledge mediates the relationship between intelligence and religiosity. Uh, then intelligence and religiosity should be correlated with GPA. Grade point average is indeed correlated with intelligence. It was shown earlier that it's not correlated with religiosity. So we again conclude that there's no evidence to support the notion that education mediates the intelligence-religiosity relationship. So if you are intelligent, you'll get a better GPA, but if you're religious, it doesn't seem to make a fact, you know, it doesn't seem to make a difference. So that really speaks against the, you know, the objections that a lot of researchers brought up in the 1960s uh, to say this was all just an accident of where these people went to school or how many classes they competed or something like that. As far as the general results go, we're going to, we're going to post a, a link to the abstract online. If you don't have access to a, college library or a subscription right. to these journals, you may not be able to get the article, but we'll at least send you to where you need to go because how the data breaks down depends a lot on what particular ways you dice it up uh, in the end. Uh, but one thing that we can say as a general is that depending on how you dice it up, IQ points between religious and non-religious people on average uh, vary anywhere from five to eight full points. So, which again. is, I mean, we're not talking about the difference between a genius and an no. adult. We're talking about, I, I mean, it's this is not eight points. Is, is not moron versus genius, but right. this isn't a, a little hiccup either. Right. It's, right. it's, it is significant. It hmm. does indicate that there's something going on here, and I guess that's the interesting question. Really, is why? Right. Why do we find that skepticism is more closely matched with a higher intelligence. Why would really religiosity equal lower intelligence? Uh, one, another way of framing that question or maybe the the first step to answering that question is what direction does this relationship take? Right. That's what I was going to ask. Does being intelligent make you more likely to become a skeptic mm-hmm. or does being religious rot your brain? <laughs> Do you learn to be less intelligent as a result of your religious training? So what's the direction of this relationship? Uh, now, one kind of caveat that must be attached to this is this is a correlational study here. All of the data here deals with correlations, uh, so it's not designed well to tease out causes. Uh, to, to get a really solid 
scientific answer, we would need to run more experiments. But nevertheless, the data does reveal some interesting relationships that can give us some guidance here. One one is that intelligence seems to develop much earlier than religiosity. So you can test intelligence of children that are eight years old and that sort of thing, and you're going to find uh, you're going to find that their IQ scores done at a young age and they will match pretty well with their IQ scores done at a latter age. While intelligence can be reliably measured at an early age, mm-hmm. religiosity cannot. Right. If you take a measurement of someone's religiosity very young, it doesn't necessarily prove at all if they're going to be religious, highly religious as as an uh, as an adult. Right. Uh, as a study uh, done by Willits in 1989 considered this and found that there were only small correlations between somebody's level of religiosity at age 16 versus age 27. A study in 2002 that compared ages of 16 and 38 found that there was no relationship. Wow. You really could not predict at that, you know, zeal for religion at that age uh, wouldn't predict the intensity of someone's religious conviction at a much later age. But here's the interesting thing. Any kind of study that included a time gap between when people were measured uh, showed that intelligence was a predictor of religiosity. So religiosity is not a predictor of of future religiosity, but intelligence is a predictor of future religiosity. Yeah, so we've switched one word. That's that's the important detail for the listeners at home. If you didn't quite get that, rewind because, yeah, that's that's the amazing conclusion. You can tell more from somebody's intelligence at a young age whether or not they're going to become religious than you can from their actual – religiousness at that particular age and the relationship doesn't go the the other way around so in other words that's pretty strong evidence that its intelligence is driving you know your initial intelligence is driving whether or not you become religious or secular wow people probably become skeptical later in life because they are intelligent rather than the other way around all the different research on different age groups seem to support this. Overall, across the board, religion was always negatively correlated with intelligence. Uh, but it was weaker in pre-college populations. Before that mm. – before college age, the scores were much closer. So college is turning people into atheists? No, not really. Uh, again, because – there are ways to measure that. I mean, there might be experiences and other things in college that, um, you know, it's natural for children to drift a little more away from their parents. There could be other variables mm-hmm. at play that cause that. But it might be more to do with some of the stuff we talked about in our developmental psych episodes. We had a two part series called, um, Are We Born Believers? Mm-hmm. And we talked about how belief, beliefs in agents, for example, invisible agents and uh, some intelligent design beliefs and that sort of thing are just much more natural for children. We naturally grow into them and we have to kind of be taught out of them. I, I think that's the idea is that as one's conceptual abilities develop over time, uh, the more intelligent are likely to drift in the direction of skepticism where as very young children, for example, just find kind of supernatural belief to be – The kind Instinctually of, feel right. The reaction time though did play a significant role in, in those – in that uh, conclusion though too, didn't it? Where we said that um, 
if forced to answer quickly, even yeah. educated scientists would would uh, seem to uh, be more sympathetic to uh, agent causation right, explanations. Right. That's for- true. Right. That gets into some of the causes here, mm-hmm. which I thought was probably the most interesting part of the meta study is um, – what does the data suggest as promising lines for a causation here? Here were some of the promising theories as to what's causing this. One was exactly what you mentioned. The idea of atheism is uh, is tightly related to a particular cognitive style. Mm. We, we talked about that on previous episodes, right? The idea of a system one versus system two right. uh, type thinking. We System one would be our more intuitive system where we we rely on our intuitions, we think very quickly, and we rely on basic kind of cognitive heuristics or rules of thumb that right. get us kind of close to the truth, but not always. Right. They work most of the time. And then system two would be something more along the lines of a more careful, analytic yeah. approach to these kinds of questions. Uh, thinking slowly. And uh, definitely, as we've seen before, that religious people tend to rely on system one thought processes more. They find it harder to shake their intuitions. And overall, this kind of different cognitive style, the more analytic style is uh, positively correlated with intelligence as well. Uh, so that could be part of what's going on here. One of the things I thought was interesting in the study is that correlations between analytic style of thinking and religiosity were actually – those correlations were lower when you controlled for intelligence. They were still significant, hmm. but controlling for intelligence, they were they were lower. In other words, that's playing a role. But what the meta study revealed is it might not be as strong of a role as as some previous studies let on. Oh, it so is true so that you're saying the analytics, uh, the analytic and uh, intuitive distinction. You're saying that's what plays a role, but it's not nearly as significant as we yes we're thinking. Yes, we are right that atheists do think slower. They okay. do think more analytically on average. Uh, it's just that doesn't drive their atheism as much as we might have supposed previously. Almost the they, analytics we need, uh, yeah, <laughs> Kant. What did you? We can't say that on the radio. <laughs> no, 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 I called him Kant, not oh, not the other word. Oh, okay. Totally different. <laughs> just totally different. Though Kant was kind of a. Still working hard to get that explicit rating on iTunes. <laughs> yeah. Let's say this, right? It uh, it is much more appealing to atheists, right, to think that we're atheists because we're better thinkers. We're more right. careful and analytic thinkers, right. and there is a little bit of data to support that. But we do need to be humble and realize that there are other things at play. So some of the other things at, at play here are: this was kind of interesting, the idea of atheism as nonconformity. Hmm. It's been well demonstrated in other literature that more intelligent people are less likely to conform. Uh, this is probably because uh, more intelligent people are much more resistant to being persuaded. They tend to be less yielding when they're presented with arguments. Somebody's trying to force something on you. You're not going to cave as quickly. And uh, and it's well known that religious groups tend to require a greater degree of conformity to strengthen their social bonds. They need pretty much everybody on the same page. So it seems natural then that more intelligent people are going to be less vulnerable to the types of pressures to conform that might come from a religious group. Uh, Also affecting that is that intelligent people 
uh, tend to be better at being self-sufficient and uh, are able to secure resources in isolation much better than less intelligent people. And so that also gives them uh, – basically they have the smarts to where they don't always need to conform to get on in society. The most interesting thing to me that this meta study proposed as a as a kind of causal influence was uh, what they called functional equivalence of religion and intelligence. And uh, they said to their knowledge this was uh, a rather new insight that they had brought to this debate. Uh, there's been discussion for quite a while the, the kind of functional view of religion. So the role it actually plays in one's life. Yeah. Uh, the idea is that people adopt religious beliefs because they have a specific motive or need that is driving that religious belief or practice. Mm -hmm. um, not always the same reasons. Right. Across the Some of them that have been identified is um, compensatory control. Basically, the idea that you uh, you uh, have a sense of personal control over yourself, and we know that when people's uh, beliefs are threatened or their sense of personal control is threatened, that people tend to become more religious. Mm -hmm. They cling to their religious ideas more. Self-regulation, people who are religious tend to be pretty good at goal setting and uh, monitoring discrepancies between where they are and uh, where they're hoping to be. They tend to be better at introducing corrective behaviors to get them to their goals. Uh, religion has been tied to a need for self-enhancement. Whenever you attack somebody's self-esteem, they tend to cling to their religion more tightly also. And by uh, self-esteem, you don't mean self-esteem in the sense of their self-worth. Yeah, I do mean that. Oh, uh, okay, when, I thought you were talking about like Ernest Becker – view of self-esteem when uh, when someone's self when someone's self-worth is uh is challenged report the tendency of religious believers is to over report all the good things they've done and what a great mm. person they are they tend to uh and they tend to turn to their religious identities as a way of doing to bolster that. up their uh the final one, version was attachment uh mm. religious people ward off loneliness and grief by projecting their normal attachment patterns onto this supernatural <laughs> deity. That's the, another theory out there. We turn to the father figure in the sky uh, and there is data that seems to show that that works mm -hmm. to some degree. Now, the interesting thing is intelligence, high intelligence has the same results as religion in all of these categories, hmm. uh, just about. More research needs to be done. So but if you can't be smart, be religious. Greater intelligence gives people a sense of better self-control hmm. or, or of better control over their circumstances. They feel they can rely on their smarts to get them through life. Uh, as far as self-regulating behavior, I mean we know, that's one of the earliest signs that someone is intelligent is the ability to delay gratification, right? To put off the marshmallow immediate test. rewards for yeah, and mm -hmm. anyone who's taken an intro to psych course knows how strongly those two are linked. And so, higher intelligent people just have a better time overall regulating their own behavior. As far as self enhancement goes, intelligence is a tremendous source of self esteem for people. Maybe you know to a fault in that people with very high intelligence tend to have some pretty unrealistically high views of themselves as well. <laughs> Galen. Uh, <laughs> man, I have this cough. I just, I, uh, so as far as self-enhancement go, one way to make yourself look better when your self-esteem is threatened is to remind yourself of your intelligence. And uh, 
Who as here far in the room as, has a PhD? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow, that's wow. what Luke quite literally. That's what like Luke, that Luke, Luke yeah, Luke does in between recordings is whenever one of us tries to lord something over him, he goes, "Yeah, raise your hand if you have a PhD." <laughs> what? How many hands in the room are uh, up? Oh, just mine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thanks, Luke. <laughs> Ass. It's good that we can throw him under the bus when he's not here. Yeah, it's great. Yeah. And uh, as far as attachment is concerned, they didn't have a lot of data related to that. But they did show that you know marital bonds are very, very strong with people who have higher intelligences. The higher your IQ, the more likely you are to be married and actually the less likely you are to get divorced. And, and the more likely you are to have bondage in your marriage? Is that – uh, uh, I, I don't know if okay. there's any con- connection between okay, that. I just, I, I'm yeah, guessing was... the more likely you are to have a, uh, you know, a complex safe word that's hard to pronounce. <laughs> Mitochondrial but, uh, DNA. Yeah, never pick a safe word that's hard to pronounce. No, no. Or with too many syllables, I, I'm guessing. So. He's guessing. So in other words, grand conclusion and, uh, many of the things that might push a person of lower intelligence to adopt a religious faith you know, for reasons personal to themselves, um, intelligence might compensate for those things just as well, which leaves the intel- more intelligent people less needing to rely on something like a church community or that sort of thing to provide mm-hmm. these notions. I guess one final thing I'd like to say about the study is the results were totally different for religious belief versus religious attendance. And that's one thing that we've tried to point out several times on this show too. You need to treat these things differently. Mm-hmm. Uh, Going to whether or not you not believe in God, yeah. yeah. A lot yeah. of people attend churches and they're a part of those communities for maybe entirely secular reasons. Mm-hmm. Uh, belief-wise, it might not be all that important to them, just community-wise it is. And uh, when you tease that out, there's not that much of a relationship between intelligence and extrinsic religiosity or church attendance. The biggest relationship is between believing and intelligence. Mm-hmm. So interesting set of data and uh, possible possible causes underlying it. Definitely one to watch for the future. And let's turn now to some counter-apologetics. Hide your faith from the light of reason. It's now time for counter-apologetics. So, did Jesus rise from the dead? Yes. Wait, no. (laughs) So, obviously, this idea seems laughable to to skeptics because they tend to, or at least they claim to, to build their, their beliefs around the best methodology that we have for learning about the way the world works, right? Uh, science. So, if not physically impossible, uh, most atheist skeptics, they are going to say that the probability of something like a resurrection without uh, the use of triple blood is is negligible at best. Oh, yeah. I saw the latest Star Trek, too. Yeah. Okay. It wasn't actually triple blood, but he put the blood in a triple and then it, anyway. Now, before I go into the this. The triple is just an incubator yeah, is what well, you're saying? Well, they tested it on the triple. They don't. There's no, like, no powerful. It's actually, it's actually Cumberbatch blood that is really the thing. Oh, that right, so right, that is right, the, right. What on earth are you guys talking it's just, about? <laughs> it's just that tribbles are really good incubators and, uh, yes, they and are. breed promiscuously. Yeah. <laughs> Any, so, sorry, Justin. You had something to say about the resurrection? Yeah, what? We were talking about important things yeah. like Star Trek. Um, so so uh, th- this past recent debate, 
I, I, I kind of get some criticism of like engaging in these apologetic arguments to the degree that we do. And so a lot of people seem to be scoffing at these things. The you very, might do the very same thing in this presentation here, <laughs> but I want to remind everybody that scoffing isn't a counter argument. So there's, there's Justin getting pissy. Uh, can I, I just add to his pissiness? I, I entirely get this is that I understand that some people view debates between atheists and theists as worthless. They're not going to go anywhere because of how infrequently people change their minds. Mm. If that is how you feel about things, why do you listen to a show Absolutely. about counter apologetics? <laughs> the entire purpose of this show is to go beyond just saying, hey, look, we're right and everybody else is an idiot. It's He's trying to emotions. actually show why we're right. right. Well, clearly because we're more intelligent. <laughs> we just established. There we go. So, yeah, let's get into the arguments as to why religion is wrong instead of just taking that at face value. Absolutely. But proceed. <laughs> um, so I wanted to spend a little time in this segment talking about some of the aspects involved involved in actually assessing the question of the final or posterior probability of uh, a, hypoth a hypothesis like the resurrection. So first of all, it's important to notice that the hypothesis being argued for by apologists like William Lane Craig isn't just that Jesus rose from the dead. Uh, rather, it's that, G it's that God raised Jesus from the dead. So if I refer to the resurrection hypothesis, that's what I'm actually referring to. To even begin to assess the final or posterior probability of the hypothesis that he was raised from the dead, then uh, an essential step is you need to come up with, with your prior probability. So in Bayesian statistics, prior probability is the probability that you would assign a hypothesis before making an observation or learning of, of some evidence. So this is the probability that you would assign given only your background information. Uh, so this may be high, it may be low, uh, or somewhere in between. And different people are going to have potentially very big disagreements about what this is because not everybody is working from the same background information. And that's what so often leads a lot of people to be talking past each other in these kinds of discussions. So, for example, a more supernaturally minded person uh, might place a high prior probability on the hypothesis that God raised Jesus from the dead, while a, a skeptic is obviously going to place a very low prior probability on, on such a hypothesis. So how do we figure out our prior? Well, one's prior probability of the hypothesis that God raised Jesus from the dead is going to be the product of two other probabilities. Uh, the first of these being the probability that God exists. Uh, and this, of course, is going to be determined by your opinion of the relative merits and strength of the arguments for and against the existence of God. Perhaps you're not an evidentialist and you think that the uh, probability of God uh, it can be inferred simply as a kind of uh, properly basic belief, like other minds or something like that. And secondly, a conditional probability, the conditional probability that God would raise Jesus from the dead given that he does exist. So, Because absent a God, we're not really sure how someone comes right, to be raised from right. the dead. But There's, even given a God, it's not at all necessarily right. going to follow that a resurrection would appear. So, a, a deist God, for example, would have no interest in intervening in earthly affairs to, to jumpstart one of his dead creatures. <laughs> yeah, like why Why would he do that? And and uh, specifically why The celestial humans? adrenaline pen to the heart. <laughs> We'd have to show that the god would be interested in doing that in the first place. And that he would have the ability, yeah, 
Um, so typically in these debates on the existence of God, um, William Lane Craig will will give a cumulative case for the existence of God, and this is kind of what you refer, were referring to earlier. And I say William Lane Craig, but let's be honest, people, there isn't really alternative approaches out there when it comes to contemporary popular apologetics. Uh, usually they're all following this kind of what I what I think is two distinct steps. So I divide the apologetic cumulative case for the Christian God into two distinct steps. The first being that the apologist will give two or three arguments from natural theology to try and persuade you to think that the probability that God exists uh, is more probable than not. So th- mm-hmm. these are things like the cosmological argument, the uh, like Kalam or the teleological argument of, of fine-tuning or the moral argument. Now, jointly considered, these are supposed to bring the probability of God above 0.5. And once they have you there, then they get to the second step. The apologist will argue that now that the existence of God is more probable than not, the hypothesis that God raised Jesus from the dead isn't just a live option, but it's the preferred option because of its ability to explain the minimal historical facts surrounding the death of Jesus. Now, that's a whole other issue of whether that actually explains it, but I'm not going to get into that. Clearly, the success of such an argument is a necessary condition for the theist to meet his burden of proof of showing that not is it just that a God exists, but it's that the specifically Christian version of right. God exists, right? Yeah. Um, now, whether or not that's sufficient, um, that a God raised a guy from the dead, I'm not really going to address here. So they you, just need to meet that bar yeah, like that's as a bare minimum. Essential. Yeah. So, you know, as I was saying earlier, the prior probability has to do with those two factors. Um, and usually the atheist is going to spend much of the time attacking the arguments from natural theology because uh, if he can do that, then the prior probability of any historical hypothesis that requires the existence of some kind of God is going to suffer from significant setbacks. But remember that attacking the probability of the existence of God isn't the only thing available to the theist when trying to undermine the prior probability because there's that other there's that other factor that plays in. The prior probability of the hypothesis that God raised Jesus from the dead isn't just sensitive to the existence of God, as I just said. It's also sensitive to the conditional probability that a God would raise Jesus from the dead if he existed. I, I want to butt in here and say that this is a interesting tactic that you're introducing, mm-hmm. and you're right. Not a lot of people take this tactic uh, to just say, "Yeah, sure, what? Maybe there is a God, but he didn't raise." You know, we have no reason to think he'd raise Jesus right. from the dead. If would that be effective? Because part of me says, "Well, some people just want to cling to the philosopher's God." But actually, I, I think a lot of the people we do encounter across the tables, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, Absolutely. and that sort of thing to debate about, they're really only concerned about showing that their God, Absolutely. as understood in Christianity, exists. Yeah, so and you might cut the crap by just hitting them where they're vulnerable. Yeah, I mean, so essentially, it's a strategy of granting your opponent as much as possible. That way, you're not. That way, you save time having to deal with non-essentials, right? And you just cut them off at the key point because that is the jump between can, deism yeah. and Christian yeah. theism. They can tie you up in ropes over the over the philosopher's god till the you know till the cows right. come home. But this is like a direct blow to their most sacred beliefs. Absolutely. So if it can be shown uh, that this you know this conditional probability that God would raise Jesus from the dead if he did exist. Uh, if it can be shown that this is lower and scrutable, 
and isn't supplemented by strongly successful theistic arguments, then any historical hypothesis that requires the existence of some kind of God is going to suffer from a very low prior probability. In other words, the evidence is, is going to need to be pretty darn strong to overcome this probabilistic deficit. Now, of course, if the evidence cannot overcome this deficit, then the theist has not met its burden of demonstrating that the specifically Christian God exists. So let's look at that second too often neglected prong required to assess our priors. The question becomes, assuming a God exists and given the background information, what reasons do we have as hypothetical theists for thinking that this God would not only be interested in raising Jesus from the dead, but would have the ability and would want to raise Jesus from the dead? First, we need to notice that in order to assess the probability of God raising Jesus from the dead, we would need to know what is predicted by the hypothesis that God exists. Unfortunately, in order to know what is predicted by the hypothesis that God exists, we would need to know something about both the abilities of this God and the desires and or habits of this God. But the question is, of course, do we have epistemic access to this information? Do we have any good reason to answer these questions? Perhaps it can be found in the conclusion of those positive theistic arguments that they were using to increase the probability of God. If we assume some form of cosmo of the cosmological argument is successful, we can say that God is at least capable of creating universes, but that doesn't really tell us much other than that he seems to be capable of creating universes, and so presumably we can infer that if he wanted to raise somebody from the dead, he'd be capable of that too. So it meets that prong, that he's got the abilities. He could raise somebody from the dead, but no info on whether or not he wants to. Absolutely. And if we assume the fine-tuning argument uh, for the cosmological constants sound, then the most we can say there is that God has an interest in tuning-based activities that lead to complex chemical reactions paving the way for biology. But that doesn't tell us much either as to whether or not he would want to or have an interest in uh, resurrection events. In, in fact, given that biology dictates that resurrection is not possible, <laughs> they even suggest against that idea. Right. Right. right, if right. You were so there are going to be countervailing concerns as well. To, uh, to get a resurrection, then you know. Right. Now it might seem uh, that the argument that can tell us the most about, uh, or at least can shed some light uh, the most on this question, would be the moral argument. After all, the moral argument for the existence of God seeks to show that uh, the that it's God's nature that serves as the grounding for moral values and duties, and that he is the good. Not just that he happens to be good, but that he is the standard by which we can compare. The problem here, I think, is that if sin is disobedience slash rebellion against a divine command, then we're forced to conclude that there's no such thing as an inappropriate use of God's power. And that's huge. Since God doesn't issue commands to himself, he has no moral duties to fulfill. And if that's the case, then this God could literally do anything or command anything. We couldn't say that if he were to command rape, for example, that it would be uh, an inappropriate use of his power because his very being... Uh, is what defines the goodness, right? Um, it might be that uh, his commanding of such a thing would be because of some so far unknown uh, fact about his nature that we don't know about yet. If we can't omit seemingly immoral actions of God's due to the fact that he ha- is under no obligations, then we can't really predict what he would or wouldn't do based on the fact that our moral intuitions feel violated or they feel 
satisfied given some act that he might do. Now, if the cosmological, teleological, and moral arguments don't give us much in terms of predictive insight, is there anything in our background knowledge information that we can use to appeal to to assess the, the God hypothesis and what it would predict? Because absent any good reasons for thinking that God would be interested in doing such a thing, then the um, then it's going to seem at best inscrutable to answer this question. Now, this is where William Lane Craig comes in to the rescue. In his most recent episode of the Reasonable Faith podcast uh, released on August 19, William Lane Craig addresses some of these issues. And this is in response to a blog post at the Secular Outpost by uh, by Bradley Bowen entitled Why God Did Not Raise Jesus from, Jesus from the Dead, wherein he argues, among other things, that uh, we need to know God's motivations for uh, saying what is probable given the existence of God. William Lang Craig responds to this, and he says, What he, Bowen, looks at is the probability that God would raise Jesus from the dead, and he wants to argue that it is low. This isn't a matter of finding a motivation. I think in that sense he is incorrect. Rather, it is simply a matter of probability. Given God's existence, how probable is it that God would raise Jesus from the dead? But this response by William Lane Craig seems deeply wrong-headed. Because, as I said earlier, in order to assess the probability of the God of natural theology raising Jesus from the dead, we would need to know what is predicted by that hypothesis. If he can't say that, then he can't even address the probability that God would raise Jesus from the dead. I mean, there's got to be a chance that he'd raise somebody from the dead. I mean, there's sure, all a chance, of these but people. Unless it's above you know. 0.5, it's like, we, what, what, there's no reason yeah, to expect the it. The key is they're trying to argue it would be more likely than not. Right. right. And right. just a hint that, well. Yeah, just showing that it it's logically happen. possible. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Apologists are famous for taking the possibility and punting to it, hmm. um, regardless of how improbable it is. So... How are we supposed to know what is predicted by the hypothesis that the God of natural theology exists if we don't concern ourselves with knowing what God's motivations are, right? The answer, according to William Lane Craig, is Jesus. Jesus. Wait, wait, wait. We need <laughs> so, a sound effect. Woo! Jesus! Jesus! Uh, in response to this, uh, William, William Lane Craig says, quote, If your background information includes the life and teachings and claims of Jesus of Nazareth, then I think that it is not all at all improbable that if God exists, he would raise Jesus of Nazareth from the dead. Don't you also this, have to assume This would that? be God's way of confirming Jesus' radical yeah, okay. personal yeah. claims to divinity, right. unquote. Okay. Yeah. But notice what we just heard him say. Notice that this claim does assume a huge swath of information about the desires of a God from natural theology. And where is Craig getting this, this information? So Craig's answer here assumes first that that this god of natural theology would care about a particular primate species enough to interact with them, uh, that he agrees with the moral message of Jesus of Nazareth when we have no place to assume this. Uh, thirdly, that um, that he would think that raising Jesus from the dead is the best way to confirm a moral message of somebody. I. I just say, great job. I agree with you. I don't attempt yeah, to practice necromancy. Yeah, when you could just open up the sky and say, hey, I, uh, I agree with this guy. Yeah. That's a lot easier than torturing and killing him. <laughs> well, yeah. Well, couldn't we just replay this, uh, this in another religion? Couldn't we just say, you know, well, what's the prior probability that the god of natural theology 
would want to dictate in Arabic right. a holy verse. And we could say, well, Look. if you consider Muhammad, mm-hmm. wouldn't this be a great way Absolutely. to confirm Muhammad's yeah. message? So it yeah. doesn't – So you're – so in doing so, you you make a lot of assumptions about that God when mm-hmm. you just recently right. said that the motivations are irrelevant. Right. Um, right. Clearly, they're not irrelevant if they're required to even talk about probability. Mm-hmm. Okay. So given those assumptions that William Lane Craig is now okay with adopting about God's motivations, what natural theological argument is Craig using for thinking any of these assumptions are true about God? These are totally auxiliary hypotheses with no independent justification whatsoever. Moreover, even if we were to grant the truth of Judaism, right, if we were to grant the Hebrew Bible as as generally historically reliable and indicative of of uh, that that's what the God of natural theology would be, which is a huge jump, and I, I would never make this jump. But assuming this, what is the probability then of the resurrection? In his debate with Bart Ehrman... William Lane Craig says, quote, Nevertheless, the original disciples suddenly came to believe so strongly that God had raised Jesus from the dead that they were willing to die for the truth of their belief. But then the obvious question arises. What in the world caused them to believe such an un-Jewish and outlandish thing? So right here, Craig is saying that even given the Hebrew Bible, even given the truth of Judaism, there's absolutely nothing in the background knowledge that suggests that God would have an interest in raising Jesus from the dead. So... The moral of the story, if you get into these debates on the existence of the Christian God, be sure to press this point firmly. If you wish to undermine the prior probability, which is a great way to, uh, which is a great approach because it kind of cuts the whole thing off at the beginning um, of the hypothesis that God raised Jesus from the dead, don't limit yourself to only critiquing the positive arguments for God. Recognize that you also should be demanding non-question-begging positive reasons for thinking that if the God of natural theology were to exist, that he would want to raise Jesus from the dead. Of course, the prior probability is not the only factor in determining the final or posterior probability of this hypothesis, but an examination of those issues will have to wait to a later time. Uh, So let's turn now to some polyatheism. This time in polyatheism, we travel back to the land of pyramids and hieroglyphs, the ever-complex and enchanting world of ancient Egypt. Hardcore polyatheism fans will be disappointed to hear, though, that this particular segment of Egyptian mythology includes only two passing references to ejaculate. Aww. (laughs) Sorry. Today, we look at the god of knowledge, literature, time, the moon, and baboons, Thoth. As with many Egyptian gods, Thoth is a distinctive-looking fellow, most often depicted with the head and narrow, curved beak of an ibis. Though he also regularly appears as a baboon as well. Uh, The ibis is in part due to the connection with the moon, uh, the beak of the ibis looking a bit like a crescent moon. Perhaps the baboon's baboon with its prominent posterior is also a tip of the hat to the moon, but I can't independently (laughs) verify that. That's just my suspicion. Uh, I think that's your cultural suspicion. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, well. Uh, Thoth's primary job was to record the weighing of the heart ceremony that took place in the Hall of Double Justice in the middle of the underworld realm of Duat, which is ironically located above the world in the intestinal tract of the sky goddess Nut. 
hearts were weighed against the feather of Mott, goddess of justice or harmony, after a trial before 42 judges where the deceased had to offer a series of negative confessions. So he's a stenographer basically? He, absolutely. <laughs> uh, if you were found in balance with the feather of Mott, your ba would be reunited with your ka to form your ak, but we'll get into that some other time. <sighs> if – yeah, that's fun. Uh, if you were found out of balance, your heart would be fed to a terrifying crocolionopotamus and you would become a double dead ghost zombie thing. Double dead? Yeah. I like that. I know, right? It's great. Sequel uh, to Walking Dead. <laughs> yes. Now, what are the probabilities of a double dead <laughs> zombie? <laughs> Quite high if we accept that Thoth – is never mind. That's right. That's it. It's all about the probabilities. Uh, either way, Thoth is the one who keeps record of the fate of each heart. Uh, because of his association with the dead and with writing, the Greeks were wont to combine Thoth with their god Hermes. Great their- Thoth from Hothman. <laughs> Wrong Hermes. Of course, they also combined the jackal-headed Egyptian god Anubis with Hermes because, frankly, they liked giving Hermes a lot of stuff to do. As with many Egyptian gods, uh, there is some dispute as to the origin of Thoth. In one version, he, Athena-like, burst out of the head of the evil god Seth. Uh, I think the more fitting version of Thoth's birth, however, is the one in which he created himself by speaking himself into being. That's a contradiction. I know, right? The old bootstrapping trick. Yeah, yeah. wow, that is. That's (laughs) metaphysical bootstrapping. I am the bad wolf. I create myself. That may give you an idea of just how powerful Thoth and language itself were to the uh, Egyptians. Along with being a record keeper, uh, Thoth also was a prolific writer. He wrote the 42 Books of Instruction or 42 Books of Thoth, proving once and for all that the ancient Egyptians were fans of Douglas Adams. Those I were, see no other interpretation. Right? <laughs> uh, those were apparently real books that were either buried somewhere in the desert or lost with the rest of the library at Alexandria. Now, of course, the very idea of a god having written not one but 42 books of instruction is something only a crazy and or slow person would buy. But that's how the legend goes. I think he did 66. Yeah. <laughs> There was also another book known only as The Book of Thoth, which by reading the first page alone, you could make, it could make you the most powerful sorcerer in the world. Oh my God. To read the second page was to know the secrets of the gods themselves. You could even see the I want to know what those world. secrets are. Could you, uh, maybe they're mostly, speculate? They're mostly dirty. It's a lot of, uh, <laughs> Ejaculate on lettuce. Oh, I threw in a third ejaculate <laughs> reference. Sorry. Of course, the book, like everything in Egypt, was cursed, and anyone who read it ended up with some horrid luck and dead family members. Bring- That's on page three. <laughs> <laughs> if you make it that far, it's kind of a oh God shit moment. Damn it! Why didn't they put that on page one? <laughs> should have quit while you were ahead. Started with that. <laughs> Uh, Thoth also managed to bring moisture back to Egypt when Tefnut, the lion-headed goddess of moisture, who was either born from the eye of Ra or born from the creator god Atum spitting out his own ejaculate, rejected Egypt and moved to Nubia. Thoth and Shu, a god created by a god sneezing out his ejaculate, 
traveled right. to Nubia whilst inexplicably disguised as baboons and convinced Tefnut to return home so that the Egyptian people could get relief from all that dry heat. Another important contribution Thoth made to ancient Egypt was the creation of the 365-day calendar, which is something that he did by gambling with the moon. It was a game of dice for one seventy-second of its light, hmm. thus adding five days to the traditional 360-day calendar. See, 360 divided by 72 equals five. So by getting one – Damn, those people were smart. Right? That's <laughs> good with the math. Uh, five more days on the calendar, uh, which in some versions also uh, bought the cursed sky goddess the time to give birth to some of the most important deities in the Egyptian pantheon because so, she was not allowed to give birth on any of the 360 days of the year. So we add five days. So, so somebody with a lunar calendar turning to the Egyptians and mm-hmm. seeing their solar calendar yeah. asking, why is your calendar all screwed up? They could honestly respond – our God lost a bet. Yeah. <laughs> the moon lost a bet, actually. Yeah. Oh, it was the, the moon, moon that lost a bet. A bet. Yeah. Um, and also, there's this whole other level, too, of Thoth's, Thoth's relation to the moon, where the moon had to be consumed uh, in cyclical uh, fashion and then grew back, which is also why the moon goes through cycles. But, you know, a lot of moon stuff. Uh, there you have it, Thoth. Or as the ancient Egyptians in Hermopolis Magna called him, the one who made calculations concerning the heavens, the stars, and the earth, the reckoner of times and the seasons, the one who measured out the heavens and planned the earth, the god of equilibrium and the master of balance, the lord of the divine body, which just sounds sexy, (laughs) scribe of the company of gods, the voice of Ra, the author of every work on every branch of knowledge, both human and divine. Impressive. That's a great nickname to have. <laughs> mm-hmm. And just one more God worth not believing in. Great bio. I just, yes. I hope sometime when I speak. That guy's CV is real impressive. Yeah, yeah. I hope when I speak, I can get that kind of uh, introduction. And the author of every book ever <laughs> written, human or divine. Um <laughs> But let's turn now. I thought this was John Hodgman we were talking about for a moment. <laughs> uh, let's turn now to some Stranger Than Fiction. In completely unforeseeable coincidence, anti-vaccine church hit by measles outbreak. Whoa! <laughs> yeah, this story comes just, yeah. I, written by Dr. Zoom on Wonkat.com. I had the opposite reaction, Justin, which was to, I, I was hoping for like a really long period of silence <laughs> <laughs> at, at which we could go, yeah, just let that one sink in for a bit. Uh, the, the Roll that over your tongue. In question here Savor is um, Kenneth Copeland's church. Kenneth yeah. Copeland who – um, has come out as not being a fan of vaccines, even talking about how they may cause autism, that yeah. old gem. Um, you, you don't need medical help or no. science. Instead, he proposes God's health and wellness plan. That children should eat right to yeah. avoid the measles. Yeah, mm-hmm. and that and the video where he does God's health and wellness plan also purports that 
vaccines cause autism and a handful of other myths related to vaccines. And there's now an outbreak of the measles at yep. his church. Some, what, 10 plus people, I believe? Way to care point. for your flock, buddy. Yeah. And I mean, oh, yes, it's, it's funny, but it's also sad because most of those people who have the measles uh, are probably children. Um, and I, I, I wonder if the this article will be inter- I wonder if they will navigate the cognitive dissonance here and interpret uh, this spiritually. They yeah. they have actually, uh, yes. and they're. I mean, one of the things they wanted to do, I I think they got infected from somebody uh, coming back home from a mission trip, yes, or something. Yeah, like that's that. that's what they they believe and uh, you know they're trying to contain it as as they should. Yeah, what they did is they uh, the church offered two free vaccination clinics to the church members so that they could finally get their kids wow. uh, vaccinated, which, I mean, that was the responsible thing to do. So right. I, I guess we can't really uh, – but yeah, what we what is humorous is the kind of spiritual uh, lack of memory, so to speak. Yeah. yeah. Well, here's Terry Copeland. Terry Copeland uh, – Pearsons, who's his daughter. Yeah, his yeah. daughter. She says, there are a lot of people that think the Bible. I already love this quote. It leaves out things such as, I don't know, people just get strange. But when you read the Old Testament. <laughs> what the hell does that mean? I don't know. I'm reading it and I don't people understand this. Strange. Yeah. People uh, just get strange. You know, is that like having sex on the side? Is that the kind of strange she's talking about? Yeah, I, I, I don't know. <laughs> Apparently what it left out was vaccinate your children, dumbasses. <laughs> um, Pay attention to data. But when you read the Old Testament, you find that it's full of precautionary measures and it's full of the law. Why did Jewish people, why did they not just die during the plague? Uh, because the Bible told them how to be clean. It told them how to disinfect and it told them – uh, there was something contagious. I'll add right here before Jesus told them not to worry about any of that right, shit. Right, 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 right. <laughs> because yeah, and he, not to wash your hands. All that nice eating. stuff about hand washing. Jesus was quick to say, "Ah, you don't need to do that." I believe that. it. I believe it's in Leviticus that says um, you should use the hottest water you can stand and um, sing "Happy Birthday" while you're washing your hands. I think that's in Leviticus. Yeah, right? yeah. That's... Each each finger fourteen times. And then uh, also, um, which uh, actually Purell. is a biblical number. Now that I'm thinking. That's true. It. Yeah. it was meant as a joke, but uh, yeah. Anyways, let me continue the quote. Uh, why did uh, why did pe- why didn't they die? Why didn't Jewish people die of plague? Because the Bible told them how to clean, how to disinfect. Told them there was something contagious. It didn't. It didn't have germ theory, but except for sin being contagious, right. and apparently yeast. And, and, and responsibility for attacking the Israelites. Yeah. Boom. And, yeah. Amalekites. And, and mor- That's right. And moral blame to the 10th generation. <laughs> um, but anyways, I could do that all day. And the interesting thing of it is that there wasn't a medical doctor per se who took care of those things. It was the priesthood. It was the ministers. It the was shaman. those who knew how to take the promises of God as well as the commandments of God and take care of things like disinfection and so forth. <laughs> so many of the things that we have in medical practice now are actually things you can trace back to Scripture. I love it. I love uh, it. It's, it's my favorite. <laughs> yeah. It, it's, uh, it's when we find out what's in Scripture that we have wisdom. Well, you know, if that was the case, then the scripture would have told you about vaccines. It would have told you about germ theory. Well, they just changed the scripture with that. (laughs) Yeah, right. uh, 
Mormons can get around this by going, um, oh, just got a vision from out there. Yeah, right. God uh, wanted to tell us about vaccines. They but. have it in place. See, what you guys don't understand is that a, a sophisticated theologian would see this as a kind of continual revelation that eventually yeah. we've learned about the – God's progressive revelation yes. So what was it when, when Copeland was saying that uh, – that vaccines caused autism. What kind of revelation was that? Because uh, just stop asking questions, Dave. Oh yeah. Well, on that note, uh, that's going to do it for us this time. We will be back soon. Um, we with, promise. Yeah. Well, we took an unannounced summer break, but we're back now. Yeah. It's one of the four breaks we take a year. Uh, there's the summer break. There's the winter break. There's the beginning of each semester <laughs> break. The and, break. Uh, you know, we get uh, – And the, oh, shit, guys, I'm hungover. I can't record today break. And, uh-huh. What do you think the prior probabilities, given the background knowledge about this show, is of us actually releasing another show in the next two weeks? Within the next two weeks? Uh, it's not looking good. It does Don't happen. That, guys. <laughs> no, it's going to happen. Believe. It, it, it is. <laughs> <laughs> We've already no, got it is going to happen. We've already got most of the We're losing listeners recorded, right now. So. Come back to us. Yes. <laughs> we we promise a, to return to regular releases. An exciting Just interview bring your friends on our back. next episode. So, yeah. so tell your friends. Yeah, actually I, I think we can tell them that. This is why you should yeah. listen next time. We got a two-parter coming up with uh Vicky Garrison who uh survived the Quiverful movement. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've talked about Quiverful in the past, uh but real quick if you don't know these are the fundamentalist Christian groups that are trying to outbreed those evil secularist people. <laughs> I scoff in their direction. Yeah, yeah. And, and surprisingly, uh, it doesn't take a lot of skill to breed. Uh, well, <laughs> sometimes. Uh, she luckily got out of that context and uh, she's going to give us an inside look at what it's like to be a quiverful mom. And uh, I, I'm I'm serious. I've already – you know, done this interview mm-hmm. and heard her talk. It was it was tear jerking. It is definitely one you do not want to miss. Mm. So, so we, watch the feed out there. Yeah. Two weeks. It will be coming very soon. Until that happens, you can check out our website doubtcast.org or freethoughtblogs.com slash reasonable doubts. Email us your comments, questions, challenges, and suggestions to uh, doubtcast at gmail.com. Check out our Facebook, Twitter, YouTube. Pages all at slash doubtcast, and we'll be back soon. Promise. With more reasonable doubts, your skeptical guide to religion. To catch up on past reasonable doubts episodes, or to email your questions or comments, check out www.doubtcast.org. Reasonable Doubts is a production of WPRR Reality Radio. You can find out more about Reality Radio at publicrealityradio.org. Reasonable Doubts theme music is performed by Love Fossil and used with permission.